Scripture lesson for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. As I read this for us, you'll be, you will realize that it's a very famous and familiar story that many of us love. So listen now for God's word to you. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the scholar asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine. Excuse me, I missed a line there. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The scholar said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. <coughs> You'll have to excuse me, I'm a little congested this morning, thanks to my son and his uh, going to daycare. It's not COVID, don't worry. We've tested. Um, if I sound a little nasally, that's why. More nasally than usual. Uh, my favorite television show of all time is the sitcom The Office. Um, I know many of you have seen it and love it. I know others of you have tried to watch it and hated every second of it. Um, I know others of you have never watched a second of it in your life and have no plans to watch it, but um, it's my favorite show. Um, It's a show that's set up as a mockumentary following the monotony of office life in the fictional paper company Dunder Mifflin in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So it's all about how boring office life is in uh, in a dying industry in a Rust Belt town. And the show is just absolutely hilarious. Um, Let me say, though, season one isn't great. Uh, Seasons eight and nine are even worse because the actor Steve Carell left the show. But seasons two through seven for me are the gold standard for television. Um, I have watched seasons two through seven probably two dozen times all the way through. Um, It's one of those shows that brings me comfort. It's one of those shows that I watch a lot when when things are hard in the world. I watched it a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. It's probably a show I'm going to start watching again with the difficulties going on in the world right now. But it's a show that I've watched over and over again. But one of the things that I've noticed is that even as I've seen the show, and I know where every, almost every joke is coming, where every plot point is arriving, even with that, there are times that I'll watch the show and something will stick out to me that hasn't stuck out to me before. I'll notice something that I hadn't noticed before. And I think that that's true with the stories that we read in the Bible. We have those familiar stories 
Um, Certainly the one that I just read for us here this morning is a very familiar, famous, and well-loved story, Jesus' parable of the, the Good Samaritan. But I think that no matter how many times we've heard them, there's always an opportunity for us to hear something new, to hear something different, to ask a, a question that perhaps we haven't asked before. You know, Jesus isn't always the most straightforward of teachers. That's why he teaches in parables. And, and in some ways, I'm glad for that because now I have a job. And um, if he was just so straightforward and he just gave you the, the plot or just bullet points, I wouldn't really have a job. We would all kind of know what to do. And, but he taught in parables. He taught in, in stories. And the beautiful thing about stories is that we can hear them again and again, and they, they're meaningful to us. You know, think about the stories that our grandparents or parents told us that we'd heard them a dozen times before, and yet we love to hear them because they, they speak to us in some profound way. I think that's true for, for Jesus' parables. I've said it before that they're sort of like a, someone else came up with this. It wasn't original to me. They're kind of like a, a diamond when you hold it up to the sunlight that as you turn it, the light reflects through a little bit differently. And I think that that's true here for the story that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan. That Jesus tells that story in response to the question of a religious scholar. Uh, we heard that question a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus says that we are to love God with all that we are, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the religious scholar has a follow-up question here in Luke. He says, who is my neighbor? It's a good question. Who's my neighbor? Is my neighbor just the person who lives next door to me, who I borrow a cup of sugar from every once in a while? Is my neighbor the, the person who looks and acts and prays like me? Is my, my neighbor the person who votes like I do? Who is my neighbor? It's a good question for us to ask from time to time because it helps us to realize that perhaps there are certain people or certain groups of people that we have excluded from that category of being our neighbor. So who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And what does it mean to love that person? We have been talking about aspects of love over the last four weeks, and we come here to this final sermon in this series on what the world most needs now. We've talked about being grounded in love, about knowing ourselves as loved and accepted. We've we've talked about love as being an exercise in going beyond the boundary of our own experience. We've built up the foundation And now the question is, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Who is our neighbor, and what does the love look like that I owe to my neighbor? And so Jesus, as he so often does in response, tells a story. We know the story. We could probably tell it ourselves. A man is walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers, some bandits jump out, and they mug him, they throw him in the gutter, and they leave him for half dead. And as he's lying there, a priest and a Levite walk by, but they pass by on the other side. But then the the Samaritan, the the ethnic and religious outsider, comes close to where the man is. He gets off of his his donkey and bandages bandages the man and takes him to an inn and says, whatever medical bills he accrues, let me know and I'll pay back whatever uh, he accumulates. So the answer to Jesus' question, who is my neighbor, depends on the perspective we take. You know, for the the man lying in the gutter, the the neighbor is the one who stops and offers a healing balm. You know, for the the, uh, religious scholar, the shocking answer to his question is that his neighbor is the outsider, the one that we named last week as beyond the boundary of his own experience, the one who at the end of the story when Jesus says, who was a neighbor to the man, he can't even say the Samaritan. All he can say is the one who showed him mercy. From the perspective of the Samaritan, the the neighbor is the one who is lying in the gutter along life's roadside, the one who shows him mercy. 
So as familiar as this story is, so is our interpretation, the application that we place on this story, that Jesus says that we are to go and we are to do likewise, that when we see people in need all around us, we are to offer them help, to offer them whatever we can. And, and we as a wealthier suburban congregation are often the ones in the position of the Samaritan. We're often in the position as the ones who can offer help. I've told you all before that I have a real bad Starbucks habit. Um, and so one of the Starbucks that I go to often is the one on 8 Mile with the boundary in Ferndale and Detroit. Uh, that's the fastest one in the area if you're looking for a fast Starbucks, by the way. Um, the one down here on Greenfield is struggling. Um, and so whenever I get my coffee and then I pull out to get back onto 8 Mile to go either home or to work or wherever I'm going, uh, there's always a, a man sitting there and he's looking for some help. He's homeless, experiencing homelessness. And so as I'm sipping on my $5 latte, I'm often the one in the position to offer help. And that's the position that most of us in this room are in, that we are the ones who are able to offer help to those in need. We have the means to purchase uh, housewarming baskets for SOS or for the Second Mile Center. We have time to go down to Crossroads Soup Kitchen and to feed the hungry. The Samaritan, this parabolic, fictional character, inspires us to do things like that to love our neighbors, love that is expressed in a, in a balm for the hurting, love that is baked into the bread that we offer to the hungry, love that is offering a place and making a place for the outsider and the stranger. All of this is at the very heart of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what's known as, as ministries of compassion, meeting the immediate needs of those around us. It's an exercise in true faith, according to the book of James. It's how we know our faith is working properly, that when we see someone in need, we don't just send them on their way, but we offer them help. We offer to alleviate their suffering. But this isn't the end of neighbor love. The story, I think, is meant to inspire us to further acts beyond simple charity, Yes, when someone is lying in the gutter, we are meant to stop and offer our help. Yes, when I'm sipping on my $5 latte, it's the least I could do to offer some of the change that I have. When our neighbor is hungry, we feed them. But there is, I think, a deeper question that confronts us in this story. Because what happens to the man in this parable, the man left in the gutter, is not a one-off. It's not as if he's the only one who was beaten and thrown into the gutter along the Jericho Road. In fact, the Jericho Road was notorious for this sort of thing happening. That Jesus says, when Jesus says a man is walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the, the crowd already knows what sort of things happen along the Jericho Road. People are often jumped and then left in the gutter as they are robbed, and they, they know this is the sort of thing that happens. It's also well known that when people were attacked and they were left in the gutter, the bandits would then wait for the helpers to come and then attack those who helped. You know, so the the priest and the Levite get a lot of flack for their lack of response in the story, but fear is an understandable reaction in those sorts of situations. And we can always speculate and let our imaginations run wild. Perhaps the priest and the Levite, with the, the frequency with which this happens along the Jericho Road, perhaps they had already stopped to help somebody along the way. They can't help everybody. We know how real that is. There are some who will not receive the help we can offer because we've already helped somebody else. But the question, I think, then, that's confronting us is, what are we to do about the Jericho Road? What are we to do about a road that produces people who lie in the gutter? And that is a question of justice. 
The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, in one of his speeches delivered at Riverside Church in 1967, said this, A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be the initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs resurfacing, restructuring. Martin Luther King, as he so often does, helps us to see stories like this in a new light. While not ignoring the importance of charity and compassion, he says that this is only an initial act. The next act is to engage in the transformation of the Jericho Road itself, the road which produces beggars in the first place. It's a question of how do we address the systems that produce that sort of situation. It's a question of justice. But what is justice? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days, sort of become a divisive term in our political discourse. It's used a lot in more progressive mainline denominations like our own these days. But what is justice? The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, in one of, his, one of my favorite quotes by anybody everywhere, anywhere on any topic, says this. He says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Let me read that again for us, just because I love this quote. It speaks so well to what justice is. It says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. So what justice is, it's simply taking the love that we have downstream and moving it upstream, moving it up to the place where people are falling in or where people sometimes are being pushed in. I think that we as Christians, historically and even into the current day, have been very good at ministries of compassion. We have been very good at feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. We've been good at pulling people out of the river because so many people have found themselves in the river. But I think where we can be challenged is to realize that our ministry is also located upstream, to the place where people are falling into, the place where people are being pushed in. That attending to the cause is as much an act of love as treating the symptoms. That love of neighbor is expressed not only in the ways that we care for those who are called the least of these, our brothers and sisters, but also in how we question why are there those called the least of these, our brothers and sisters? Why does our society and our communities produce those that are called the least of these? Love of neighbor is expressed not only in the ways that we care for the poor, but also in the ways that we address the systems that keep them poor. Love is, of neighbors expressed not only in the coins and the money that we offer to those who beg on the corners of our city streets, but also in the ways that we advocate for better access to mental health and substance abuse programs that so many of our homeless individuals struggle with. Love is expressed not only in what we can collect for those in need, but in the ways that we can make sure that others have opportunities, access to education, access to, to livable wages. Love of neighbors is expressed not only in the food that we offer the hungry, but in the ways that we address the reality that there are 30,000 people in the city of Detroit who live in a food desert. A food desert is just an urban area where there is lack of access to affordable food, or it's advocating for the nearly half of Detroiters who live with food insecurity. 
love of neighbors expressed not only in a Christmas Eve offering for those locked away simply because they are poor, but also in writing campaigns to Michigan legislators to end cash bail that disproportionately affects those who are in poverty and communities of color. Love of neighbor is not only including every voice within the walls of the church, but making sure that voices that are marginalized and disenfranchised are included within our wider society. Love of neighbor is not only getting off of our donkeys, offering a healing balm to the man in the gutter, but it's then going back out and transforming the Jericho Road itself. I've often wondered what the Samaritan did while the man was recovering, and we don't really know. Maybe he went back to his day job or his daily life, but I think this is an opportunity for us to let our imaginations run a little bit wild. And what I like to imagine is that the Samaritan went out after picking up the one man, meeting his individual needs, went out to try and change and transform the Jericho Road itself, to change the system, to change the structure that put this man in that position in the first place. As he expressed love and bandages and arrived to the hospital, he then expressed love and advocacy and trying to keep others from ending up the way that this man did. Love of neighbor, I think, is us learning that we have a voice, just like the Samaritan did. Just like the Samaritan was able to offer help, we also have the means and the ability to affect change. Cornell West says, never forget justice is what love looks like in public. Love is expressed in heading upstream. Love is advocating for the Jericho Road to be different. Love as justice is knowing that our neighbors are harmed by the systems and structures that we all exist within. That just as we try to change someone's situation as they're hungry by offering them a piece of bread, we try to change their situation and what caused that hunger in the first place. About a month ago now, we had our stage youth ministry service over at First Pres Royal Oak, and all of the kids from stage did an amazing job. Um, there's such an impressive array of talent within our uh, congregations, all the youth in our congregations. But I, wanna, I was especially proud of our two Greenfielders who preached that Sunday. Um, I'm waiting for a baby, and so maybe they can fill in for me in the pulpit. I'm sure that they would, they would, they would love that opportunity to write another sermon um, and give, deliver another sermon. Um, but I was really impressed. They, they, they spoke really well, and they, they spoke about these big social justice issues. They spoke about the climate crisis and racial justice and issues of sexual violence. They wanted to see their faith be one that addressed things upstream, a faith that addressed the causes of why people were harmed in the first place. And I think that every community of faith, it's wise for all of us to listen to our younger generation. And, I'm, and in this moment, I'm not including myself in the younger generation. Um, I know you all are laughing at me for that one, but I'm going to use it to my advantage as long as I can. But I think for those who are younger than me, they are seeing things that even I am not seeing. Um, and it's wise for us to listen to them, to them. They can inspire us to a sort of faith that we have never imagined. They can help us to ask questions that we have never asked before. And so as we close out this February sermon series where we have been talking all about love and what the world needs most now is love, uh, I think what we are reminded most now is that what the world needs from us is that we would be people of love, a love that is expressed uh, towards our neighbors, not only for their immediate needs, but also for the, the things, the structures that produce their need in the first place. Love that is displayed through justice. Love where not only are the man's wounds bandaged along the Jericho Road, but where the Jericho Road itself is remade. Thanks be to God. Amen.